Amen. Amen. Hey, you guys, our band is absolutely incredible. Can we thank Roxy and the worship team for leading us? Man, what a good, good time. Did everybody have a good day at Hume Lake today? Everybody had a good day? Good, good, good. Well, we did too. How many of you passed the swim test? Raise your hand if you passed the swim test. That's what I'm talking about, y'all. This was a... Uh, this was a big deal, big deal in our uh, little cabin we're in because our two oldest uh, were going out for the swim test and uh, they were at the very end of the line and they got a lot of encouragement from watching you all. So thank you so much for swimming and doing a great job. How many of you had a milkshake today? Raise your hand if you had a milkshake today. Now, I think, I don't know if Harrison is back there, but I think, but he said something so profound the other day and I just want to echo it. I think, I think this was Harrison. I think mint chocolate chip is just about the worst flavor in the world. Is there anyone else? Raise your hand if you're with me. Raise your hand. I mean, I, I, I can't get down with Harrison about mayonnaise. I love mayonnaise, but mint chocolate chip, it doesn't belong. It doesn't belong in the ice cream family. <laughs> So last night, so last night, and I just got to say, you guys, I, I am so incredibly impressed with every single one of you that last night we went to the deep end. We swam to the deep end last night and we did some theology talking about who is God that Jesus is God. We discovered some pretty significant truths within the Christian faith from John chapter one. And you guys did an incredible job hanging in there. I was so proud of you. And I love seeing so many of you with your Bibles and your journals. I wanna encourage you, continue to bring those with you every single chapel. And, and tonight, tonight we have some really, really important stuff to talk about. But let me first tell you, about a really embarrassing moment that I just had recently, like within the last six months. So uh, I got asked to do a funeral for someone at our church. And this guy is an incredible guy at our church. And there was a ton of people at this funeral. And I remember leading up to the funeral, I started to feel kind of sick. And uh, like, I was coughing a lot. My, my throat was really sore. I was, I was kind of sneezing a lot. And, and I just wasn't feeling like my very best self. And, and so I'm kind of stressed because funerals are like, it just feels like, man, like, like you really want to honor the person who passed away and their families. And so it just feels like an extra level of pressure. And, and I wasn't feeling so great. And so I remember I was at home that morning preparing to head to church for this funeral to kind of officiate it. And I'm getting ready and I'm kind of practicing what I wanted to say. And, and I'm putting my suit on, which as you can tell, I mean, I love wearing sweats. I wear a suit like once a year if I have to. I mean, I just am not a big suit guy. So I'm trying to fit into my suit and get everything all ready. And I'm kind of practicing my lines. And, and I grab this black pair of shoes that I haven't worn worn in forever. And I've, I've had them for almost forever. And, and so I grab my black pair of shoes. I, I put them on and I'm kind of pacing around my room. I'm practicing some of the lines. Then I get in the car and, and I drive to the church and park. And then I'm, I'm in this little kind of room that we have to sort of prepare for, um, for leading this funeral. And so I'm kind of like walking around the room, preparing this message. And then all of a sudden I'm walking and I go, and I like kind of like stumble for a second. And I'm like, that's weird. Like there was nothing to trip on. What, what's going on? And I took another step and I kind of like stumbled a little bit. 
and I looked at the bottom of my shoe and the, literally the rubber sole of my shoe is falling apart, okay? Like it's just, it's just falling apart. And I start to panic because I'm thinking, I don't have a backup pair of shoes. I'm about to go up and this shoe is literally falling apart. And as I'm walking, I can feel it sort of giving out in my foot. And so I, I remember right as it was time, I waited till the very last minute and I'm walking out to do this funeral and I kind of am like scooting my feet like this, right? Like, like I'm, I'm not willing to step because I don't want anything more to happen. And so I'm kind of just scooting my feet. I get out there, I have a seat and I am so anxious and worried about how this thing is gonna go down. So there were three different parts where I had to kind of get up and say something. And so the first part, I get up there and I'm on a stage very similar to this. And there's a group of people sitting just, just like you are. I'm sitting up there and I'm kind of giving like this little opening prayer and then I walk back down to my seat and as I'm walking back down to my seat, there are chunks of my shoe following me, okay? Like it was bad, you guys. Chunks of my shoe are following me and I look at it and I'm like, this is the weirdest thing. Then I got up for the second time to deliver a message and I had kind of forgotten about the shoes at this point because I was passionate about what I was sharing and so I'm giving this message, I'm passionate. I walk back down to my seat, I take a seat, and I look up on the stage right where I was, if you could get a picture right here. There is a chunk this big of my shoe on, literally on the stage, you guys. And it was like the most embarrassing moment for me because I was sitting right in the front row and I was sitting next to the guy who had lost his father. It was his dad that we we're honoring. And, and I like, it's like this moment of reflection and I'm sitting there and I just like look over at him and he's got his eyes open and his arms crossed and he's like looking at this chunk of shoe on the stage, right? And he's just kind of looking at it like, what in the world is that, you know? So I get up one more time, you guys. I get up one more time and I'm like, all right, you guys, it's time to pray. And I just said it because I, I knew what I had to do. And this is like a little pastoral secret. I was like, can everybody just close their eyes? I need everybody to close their eyes real quick. So I had everybody close their eyes and I started praying. And while I'm praying, I'm literally cleaning up my shoe. Like I'm literally trying to package up my shoe. I'm packaging up as I'm praying. I kind of like put it off to the side. I'm like, amen. And I start walking out. And as I'm walking out, holding this chunk of my shoe, I'm like running to the parking lot. And I am seeing my shoe is falling off behind me. Like it literally, chunks of my shoe are literally right where I'm stepping all the way till when I got out of the car, I didn't even have a bottom to my shoe anymore. Like, and you guys, this is the worst time for that kind of thing to happen. Now here's the thing. I tell you that story about broken shoes at a funeral because I think for some of us, if we're honest, we're wondering if faith in Christ, or maybe even the Bible, is kind of like those shoes that are falling apart. That, that we, we could like walk around in them for a little bit, but maybe one of the reasons we're, we're hesitant to fully give our lives to Jesus or maybe one of the reasons that we're skeptical about actually believing what this Bible tells us is because if we're honest, we're afraid that it's gonna fall out from under us. 
We're afraid that under pressure, it's going to cave. It's going to not hold us up. We're going to be made to look like fools. And we'll realize that the very thing we trusted, the very one that we gave our life to, doesn't exist or isn't reliable. And so before we go any farther in our times together in our chapels, before we go any farther, I want to spend tonight talking about the Bible. Uh, but but let, let's pick up where we left off yesterday in John chapter one, beginning in verse 43. There's some incredible excitement about what's happening right now in the Jesus movement. It says, the next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about the whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said to him, he said of him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me, Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Wouldn't that be a wild moment? If Jesus was like, I saw you in fourth period. You're like, whoa, Jesus, all right, crazy. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus said, you believe because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. He then added, very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And thus, the movement, the revolution that Jesus is initiating is taking place. It's happening. And here's what's crazy, you guys. Jesus, it's clear throughout the Gospels, Jesus invited a bunch of unqualified nobodies to change the world, and they did. I mean, think about this. Jesus had 12 followers. Most of them were teenagers. Jesus came from a, a fairly poor background. He was murdered at the age of 33. His disciples said that he rose from the dead, and everybody thought followers of Jesus would die out within the first generation. And yet here we are where a third of the world, over three billion people on planet Earth today proclaim to follow Jesus. It's literally crazy. Jesus invited a bunch of unqualified nobodies to change the world, and they did. But that was 2,000 years ago. How can we be sure that the Bible and the stories about Jesus can be trusted? And maybe some of you have been afraid to ask questions like that. And I want to encourage you. You have got to keep asking questions about God. You've got to keep asking questions about the Bible. Because if you don't, you'll settle for, for a shallow faith. You'll settle for a premature faith. 
You'll, 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 you'll settle for, for a kind of belief in God that really isn't personal or something you've wrestled through. And then as soon as the pressure of life comes, it will, ca- it will cave from under you. It will give way. But unlike those shoes that I told you about, I think a true understanding of God, a true understanding of his word will hold up and will hold us up in each and every season that we find ourselves in. And so if you're the note-taking type, here you go. Here's our big question for tonight, and it's this. What is the Bible, and why can we trust it? Because it's the book that your leaders keep going back to and referencing verses from. It's the book that I'm going to continue to use every single time that we get up here and, and talk about God. It's, it's the, the, the centerpiece of information in terms of who God is and our faith. It, it's, it's everything. And so we've got to ask this question, what is the Bible and why can we trust it? And really, when you start talking about the Bible, there's four questions. And what we're going to do for our time together tonight pretty quickly is we're just going to answer these four questions. The first one is this, what is the Bible? Part number two, how do we know that the Bible is true? Part three, why should we read the Bible? And part four, how can I read the Bible the right way? Let me tell you up front, my hope and my desire is that when we leave this chapel, that every single one of us has a greater confidence in this book and is at least able to say, well, I need to take it a little bit more seriously than I have before. And so let's jump in together. Big question, part one, number one is this, what is the Bible? The Bible is God's inspired and authoritative revelation to humanity about who he is, who we are, and how we are to live. Let me break that down a little bit. Number one, we believe that, God, that the Bible is actually inspired by God. That as we'll see in a few moments, he used human authors, but that it has his divine inspiration behind it. We also believe that the Bible is authoritative. It's an authoritative revelation. So, so it means it, it, it has influence on our lives. It has bearing on our lives. It means we are accountable to the message found within it, that, that we choose to follow it as our roadmap for life. And really what the Bible is about is it's a message to all of humanity from a loving, holy, good God who wants us to know who he is. He wants you and I to know who we really are and then how we are to live. So first and foremost, the Bible isn't just a a playbook for how to live your life. While there is a lot in the Bible about how to live your life, the first and most important part of the Bible is that it reveals to us who God is. And then the good news is in a culture, in a world right now, where we as people are so confused about who we are, the scriptures make it clear who we are. And then God doesn't leave us just wandering around life trying to figure out what it's all about. No, he tells us how we are to live. Now, this is crazy, you guys. This is crazy. Check this out. Over a 1,600-year time period, 
using multiple genres, 40 diverse authors in various locations on three different continents, the Bible tells one unified story, the story of God. This is one of the things that makes the Bible a, a, a uniquely holy scripture. And what I mean by that is there's, there's other scriptures, there's other religions that claim to have holy scriptures, but nothing quite like ours that spans such a long period of time in so many genres with 40 diverse authors across three different continents, and yet the message is consistently the same. The Bible, well, the word Bible, it literally means books or library of books, so the first thing we need to understand is, is this wasn't just like one book that, 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 you know, some guy just wrote out real quick, like one crazy night, like, you know, his fortnight broke and he's like, well, I might as well just write something down. So he started writing like this crazy story. That's not how it worked. That the Bible is really better understood as a library of books, 66 of them to be Exact and, and what's crazy is, as I mentioned, there were so many different genres. There's history and poetry and story. There's, there's wisdom, there's songs, there's prophecies, there's, there's letters. That it was actually written by 40 different authors and some of those were shepherds, some were poets, some were soldiers, some were scholars and servants and tax collectors and fishermen, entrepreneurs and kings. That it was written on hillsides, in the wilderness, in cities, in dungeons, in palaces, on the continents of Asia, Africa, and Europe. And it is still the most popular book of all time. Anybody remember Hunger Games? Anybody ever seen Hunger Games? Have you heard about Hunger Games? Okay, check this out. Did you know that the Hunger Games trilogy sold 50 million copies? How many of you know the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Okay. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe has sold 85 million copies. How many of you know the Lord of the Rings? Anybody like Lord of the Rings? Did you know the Lord of the Rings has sold 150 million copies? Did you know that to date, the Bible has been distributed 4 billion times? 4 billion copies. And here's what's crazy. Here's what's crazy. Every year, the Bible is either sold or given away a hundred million times. It's insane. How, how, many of you, how many of you have the Bible app on your smartphone? Who's got the Bible app on your smartphone? They just hit over 500 million, half a billion Downloads And did you know, this is interesting, did you know that the code written for the YouVersion Bible app that's been downloaded by over half a billion people was actually written by a teenager? I don't know if you knew that. So don't ever, don't ever, don't ever let anyone sleep on this generation or think that you're too young. Because the Bible app has been downloaded over half a billion times, coded by a teenager. But here, here's what's crazy. Here's what's crazy, you guys. In the year 1947, in the year 1947, the oldest Hebrew manuscripts, which, which the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, the, the oldest Hebrew manuscripts that we found, the oldest manuscripts that we had, were dated from the year 900 AD. 
And so we had copies, copies of these Hebrew manuscripts and the earliest, the youngest ones that we had dated 900 AD. Well, that very same year, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, which were 223 brand new manuscripts. And the oldest, the oldest dated all the way back to 125 BC. And so literally overnight, overnight, we had copies that were now a thousand years older, a thousand years younger than the copies we had the day before, 223 of them. And as they began to read them, everybody was asking the same question. Will they be the same? Will these copies from 900 AD be the same as the ones that we discovered in 125 BC with a thousand year difference. And this is insane. They found that these manuscripts with a thousand years difference were 95% the same. And let me tell you, the 5% was a, a, a slight spelling error or a lack of punctuation. In other words, the scribe as the scribe was making copies they accidentally misspelled this word or, or forgot to include this punctuation. In other words, with a thousand years difference, there was nothing of substance that was difference. That was different. There, there was nothing significant. There was nothing theological. There was nothing historical that was different. This is unheard of in the ancient world. And so if some of you have ever felt like, okay, well, I've got this English Bible that I just got, that my church just gave me, or that my parents just bought me, and, but how do I know that, that this was actually what was written so long ago? Well, it's because every time we find older and older and older copies, they match precisely. Let's talk about the Old Testament for a minute. Here's what the Old Testament is. The Old Testament was written between 1400 and 400 BC. It was written in Hebrew and Aramaic on papyrus and leather. It was collected as a whole in 95 AD. And Christians, we take the Old Testament seriously because Jesus believed it, he quoted it, and he used it. Now, the New Testament, the New Testament, which is the story of Jesus and the church, that was written between the years of 50 and 90 AD. And this is what's crazy. It was written by eyewitnesses or those who interviewed eyewitnesses. And so it wasn't written by people far away, removed from the actual historical events recorded. No, it was written by eyewitnesses, people who saw it with their own eyes or who interviewed people who saw it with their own eyes. And I love this detail. It was written, God saw fit to have it written in the language of Koine Greek. Now, now back in that time, there was classical Greek. There, there, was, there was a kind of Greek that only scholars could understand, that only wealthy people could understand, that only highly educated people could understand. And then there was Koine Greek. And Koine Greek literally means vulgar Greek. It, it means everyday language. This is why it's so important that you get a Bible that you can understand. 
a Bible that's, that's written in a translation that, that makes sense to our everyday language because God's intention from the very beginning was that literally, just like with Koine Greek, it didn't matter what sort of social class you came from. It didn't matter how educated you were, who your parents were, how much schooling you went to. Everyone could understand Koine Greek, and God from the very beginning wanted everyone to understand his message. It focuses on the life of Jesus and the churches of Greece, Italy, and Asia Minor. The gospels and the letters in the New Testament, they circulated amongst the Christian churches immediately after they were written throughout the first and second centuries. And then the entire Bible is canonized, meaning it was put together in a complete set as authoritative in the year 397 AD at the Council of Carthage, which was overseen by the North African theologian and church father, Saint Augustine. So that's like nuts and bolts what the Bible is. But, but the next question is a really, really important one is this. How do we know that the Bible is true? Okay, so we know that the Bible was written a long time ago. We, we can feel confident that the words that we're reading in our English Bibles right now are the same words that were written 3,500 years ago, 2,000 years ago, but how do we know that the Bible is true? Let's talk about the Old Testament. Is the Old Testament reliable? The, the Old Testament, the, the stories before Jesus, are those reliable? Check out what this biblical archaeologist said, Dr. J.O. Kinnaman. He said, of the hundreds of thousands of artifacts found by other archaeologists, not one has ever been discovered that contradicts or denies one word, phrase, clause, or sentence of the Bible, but always confirms and verifies the facts of the biblical record. And so when the Old Testament uses dates, uses locations, names, kings, people that were in authority, that every time archeologists have gone to discover were those people actual people, were those places actual places, they continue to find over and over again that they're true, that they were real. Or check out this one. Did you know that the Bible contains 2,500 prophecies, most of those in the Old Testament? The Bible contains 2,500 prophecies and 2,000 of them have already been fulfilled. A, a prophecy is just a promise made today that will be fulfilled in the future, sometimes fulfilled multiple times in the future. There's over 2,500 of those. In other words, God is saying, check me on this. Like watch as I inspire these authors to write down my message and give you prophecies and details that will come true later. The chances of this happening are 10 to the 20,000th power, which I, I, I'm not a math guy at all, but like, I think that breaks your calculator, right? Like, I don't think there's, I don't think there, you can even compute that. Check out this. In approximately 700 BC, 700 years before Jesus came to the earth, the prophet Micah in the Old Testament named the tiny village of Bethlehem as the birthplace of Israel's Messiah in Micah chapter five, verse two. Bethlehem, this, in, this seemingly insignificant, random blip on the radar. Jesus was born around 7 to 4 BC in Bethlehem, making the fulfillment of this prophecy one of the most widely known and widely celebrated facts in history. The fact that 700 years 
before Jesus ever walked on planet earth, prophets were saying, God has told us that the Messiah, that Jesus will be born in Bethlehem and it came to be is incredible. Or check out this one from the Old Testament. Some 400 years before crucifixion was invented, both Israel's King David and the prophet Zechariah described the Messiah's death in words that perfectly depict that mode of execution. Further, they said his body would be pierced and that none of his bones would be broken, contrary to customer, customary procedure. Um, customary? Why am I having a customary procedure? My brain's farting. I don't know. Procedure in cases of crucifixion. Here's what's insane. Before crucifixion was even a thing, it's described in the Old Testament. And it's noted that Jesus would be pierced in the side and that his bones wouldn't be broken, which was so uncommon. Because what they would do is when, G when, when people were dying on a cross to sort of speed it up, they would break their legs so they couldn't lift themselves up to take a breath. This, this really specific prophecy, historians and New Testament writers confirm that Jesus of Nazareth died on a Roman cross and his extra or extraordinarily quick death eliminated the need for the usual breaking of bones. A spear was thrust into his side to verify that he was indeed dead. This is incredible. And, and then consider the 122 constants that we talked about last night. It's amazing. Well, what about the New Testament? What about the stories of Jesus and beyond? Is the New Testament reliable? Here's just three reasons. Here's three reasons that we can trust the New Testament. Number one, the New Testament writers included embarrassing details about themselves. Why in the world, if you were making up a story, if it wasn't true, why would you include details about yourself that make you look bad? Nobody does that unless they're telling the truth. For example, the disciples fell asleep when Jesus needed them the most. The whole world is gonna read this and think, what a bunch of losers. But they included it because it happened. Number two, Peter was called Satan by Jesus. Peter ends up becoming one of the key figures and leaders in the church. And all of a sudden these documents start spreading about him that at one point Jesus called him Satan? How do you build like a big pastoral following when the guy that, that, that you're following, the one, the one who's the Lord of the universe, who you're trying to get everyone to submit to, called you Satan? You only include it if it happened. Or what about the fact that some are confused and doubt before and even after the resurrection? Why would they include these details? Simply because they happened and they wanted to tell the true the whole truth and what Jesus experienced. Number two, reason number two, the New Testament writers included events related to the resurrection they would not have invented. For example, Mary Magdalene, who was a woman and formerly possessed by a demon, is the first to see Jesus. And unfortunately, in this culture and at this time, a woman's testimony didn't carry any weight. And so if they were making up a story about Jesus rising from the dead, if it was all in their imagination, they would suggest that, that men had seen Jesus raised from the dead so that their testimonies would be more valid. But that's not how it went down. Oh, the women, the faithful women, when the dudes were afraid and hiding, 
the women show up to the tomb and they're the first to see Jesus. And so that's just what's recorded. Or how about this? The disciples were afraid and Thomas even doubted. One of the core 12 even doubted that Jesus rose from the dead. Third reason is this. The New Testament writers abandoned their long-held sacred beliefs. They adopted new ones and did not deny their testimony under persecution or threat of death. Many of the writers of the New Testament came from the Jewish faith. And in this faith, they had very comfortable lives. They were well-known. They were respected. They leave all of that and begin worshiping Jesus as God, which is blasphemy in the Jewish religion. What about this? Peter, do you know that he was crucified upside down? Do you know that Jesus' brother James was stoned, that, that Paul was beheaded, that 11 of the disciples were martyred, meaning they were murdered for believing Jesus rose from the dead, that John, who were spending the entire week exploring his historical account of the life of Jesus in the Gospel of John, that he was literally boiled in oil and exiled away from his family and friends to an island called Patmos to die? Why would they do that? unless what they saw with their own eyes radically changed their lives. That's why we know, that's why we can trust what the Bible says and believe it's true. Well, let me ask question number three. Why should we read the Bible? Why should we read the Bible? One of my friends named Ben was going through an incredibly difficult and painful time in his life. Everything that he had confidence in, everything that he felt good about, every significant relationship in his life was collapsing before him. And I remember just kind of walking through this season with him. And I'll never forget at his lowest low, him and I were having a conversation one afternoon and he said this to me. Lately, when I open the Bible, it feels like I can breathe again. He was experiencing anxiety, he was experiencing hopelessness. Everything in his life was falling apart. But when he opened the Bible, it felt like he came in contact with God's word. It felt like he was given hope that was beyond his circumstances. It's why Paul in 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17, he says this, all scripture Genesis to Revelation, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, which righteousness is just a fancy word for being in right relationship with God, in right relationship with others, so that all God's people may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's God-breathed. That means if you want to come in close contact with God, if you want to experience his breath, you find it in God's word. It's why the author of Hebrews says, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to a dividing soul and spirit joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. There's something living and active about this. It's different than any other book. And as you pick it up in different seasons and as you read it, it's gonna impact you differently. You're gonna take things away that you haven't seen before. 
You read it because it gives you comfort. You read it because you come in contact with the breath of God. You read it because it's alive and active. And lastly, especially as we're in the first few days of camp, I want to give you some practical tips for how can I read the Bible the right way? How can I read the Bible in in the most helpful way? I want you to try to jot some of these down. Here's some practical tips to help you read the Bible. Number one, get a Bible and find a time and a place that works for you. Hume has extra Bibles here if you need to borrow one. If you need one, you don't have one, Hume has one for you. Get a Bible and then find a place and a time every single day to be with God. Number two, read one book from start to finish, one chapter a day. And I'd recommend beginning with John because that's what we're studying all week. Some of us are the kind of Christians where maybe we're like, "Mm," and we read a verse and we're like, that was weird, right? It's like totally out of context. It's like that, oh, all right, cool, I read my Bible. No, don't be that kind of Christian. God intends for us to read the whole Bible, to understand his entire story. And so start with the Gospel of John. Try to read one chapter a day from start to finish. Number three, read the Bible privately. Like read it on your own, spend some time with God, but also read it with others. In fact, for like over 1,500 years, that's kind of how people read the Bible. They read it in groups. They they had conversations about it. So it's important to read the Bible on our own, but it's also important to read the Bible with others. Pray before you read the Bible. I try to do this before I read. I go, okay, God, I know that you want to speak to me. Open my heart. Help me to hear what you have to say. And number five, talk with friends and family about what you're reading, and what you're learning. I love that Hume encourages us to use the SOAP method. It's, it's an incredible way, I think, to study the Bible. And I know you kind of have this in your journals, but here's what I'd encourage you to do, that when you start reading John, maybe you're reading John chapter one, the S in SOAP stands for scripture. In other words, what verses are standing out to you? As you read John chapter one, start to underline some words, highlight some words, highlight some phrases that stand out to you. The O in SOAP stands for observation. This is where as you're reading it, you're asking questions. Who's in this story? When did this happen? Where did this happen? What's actually going on? And why is this significant? The A in SOAP stands for application. This is where after you read it, you go, okay, how does what I just read apply to my life today? And then you spend some time praying. That's the P in SOAP, prayer. What should I pray in response to what I've read? Students, I want to encourage you. It was my freshman year of high school that I started reading the Bible every single day. It's when I became a Christian. And it changed my life. I want to invite you to start a daily Bible reading habit today because I know it will change your life forever. I love what the North African theologian St. Augustine said. He said, for now, treat the scripture of God as the face of God. Melt in its presence. You know what's so cool is the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible, it promises us that you and I will see Jesus face to face someday. Did you know that? That if you're a follower of Jesus, 
that you are one day going to literally be looking at Jesus face to face. But Augustine encourages us. He says, until that day, treat the scripture of God as the face of God. Melt in its presence. Get as close to God as you can. Let me close with this story. There was a a young woman who came, uh, a young adult who came into my office a few months ago. And she sat down in my office and she started to tell me all about the really horrible things she'd experienced in life. She talked about some abuse she had experienced. She talked about her friends betraying her. She talked about growing up feeling like nobody, including her parents, even loved her. She just talked about all the struggles she faced and how it's been an uphill battle her entire life and that it just felt like nobody loves her. And then then she just kind of said this thing that just kind of rolled off her tongue and she went on as if almost she hadn't fully thought about it, as as if it was such a deep-held belief for her that she didn't even need to analyze it. And she simply said this, I know God hates me. Before I go on, I wonder if some of you feel that way. I wonder if some of you think about the circumstances of your life and have concluded, I know God hates me. When she finished sharing, I said, is it okay if I share some things with you? And she said, yeah. I said, from what I understand, from what you shared with me, your life has been horrific and painful in every way unimaginable. And I am so sorry for all that you have experienced. But I need to tell you something right now. God does not hate you. That you've grown up in a sinful, broken world and people have let you down and and evil and sin have, have brought such pain and trauma to your life. But if you're wondering how God feels about you, you can't look at your circumstances. If you're wondering how God feels about you, you need to look at the cross. You need to look at the fact that God got up on a cross, died for your sins, and rose from the dead to give you forgiveness, to offer you freedom and salvation, to grant you eternal life. That if you're wondering how God feels about you, you only have to look at the cross. And for the rest of your lives, students, no matter what you go through, No matter what painful things happen, know that God's heart grieves and breaks with you, that there will be justice, that God will eventually make all things right, but that right now, in the middle of him coming the first time and before he comes again for the second time, that we sit in this place where there is a lot of pain and evil and sin and brokenness, and the temptation is to look at the circumstances of our lives and determine how God feels about us. And friends, God's word makes it clear that all the evidence we need for how God feels about us is found in Jesus. That's why the author of the Gospel of John, the disciple, 
he said these words. For God, he recorded these words. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Do you see why it's so important to anchor our faith, to anchor our lives to something that can handle the pressure and will not separate and fall apart and come undone under the weight of our circumstances and our experiences and our pain and the difficult things of life. If, if you put all of your weight on your feelings, if you put all of your weight on your circumstances to tell you who God is, oh, you'll be significantly let down and you'll conclude like that young woman did that God hates you. But if instead you'll choose to anchor yourselves to God's reliable word, if instead you'll choose to believe what his trustworthy message says about who he is, who you are, and how we are to live, then in the face of the worst circumstances, you can with confidence know that you are loved by the God of the universe. Why? Because he said so. And so no matter, Jesus said in this life we'll have trouble. There are really, really hard things about living these days. But make no mistake about it. God doesn't hate you. In fact, he adores you and he loves you. And you can trust that above your feelings because he said so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for our time together this evening. I know I needed to be reminded again that your word is trustworthy, it's powerful. And that just as those first disciples joined this Jesus movement, discovering that their sins were about to be forgiven as Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead, and as they began to share this message in all the world and as it would get recorded and passed down from generation to generation, enduring churches being burnt and Bibles being burnt and, and many predicting that that Christianity wouldn't last past a single generation of believers. Here we are today, 2,000 years later. And it's because your word is trustworthy. It's reliable. So God, I pray that today, tonight in our cabin conversations, that we would reflect on how our lives should be different. How should life be different because your word is trustworthy and reliable. What kind of things do I need to bend towards your will in your direction? What sins do I need to hand over to you, repent of and walk away from? What are you calling me to? 
What do you want me to know about who you are, who I am, and what it means to live according to your word? And God, most of all, I just pray for the student tonight. I don't know who they are, but I know they're in this room who believes deep down inside that you hate them because of what they're going through right now, because of the suffering of the challenges they're facing. And I pray tonight that you would lift their hearts, that you would lift their eyes to see that the truth is you love them because your word says so. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.